Al Jazeera Podcasts. Today, Israel's dealing with a massive labor shortage, costing the country hundreds of millions of dollars a month. It's banned over 100,000 Palestinian workers since the start of its war on Gaza. Now, Israeli companies are recruiting in India. We are unemployed. We don't get any work in India. So, what does this say about India's relationship with Israel? I'm Natasha Del Toro, and this is The Take. Today, I'm speaking with one of The Take's producers, Ashish Maholtra. Hey, Natasha. Hey, Ashish. It's great to talk to you. Now, I know you've been looking into this story about Indian workers being recruited by Israeli companies, which is super interesting. What was it about this story that caught your eye? Yeah, I mean, I guess we should start with the fact that I'm Indian, so <laughs> I'm always interested in India stories. That makes sense. Um, and, and I know you've told me that you also spent time working there as a journalist, right? Yeah, that's right. I spent about four years based in Delhi, reporting from India, and continuing to keep a close eye on the country. So this story about Indian workers being recruited by Israeli firms, it really caught my eye because, you know, the fact that these workers actually want to go there despite the ongoing war in Gaza, that was fascinating to me. Thousands queued here in northern India amid a recruitment drive to send workers to Israel. Fearing unemployment in their home country, some say they're willing to take the risk of entering a war zone. And the story as a whole just really sits at the nexus of quite a few bigger stories, you know, whether it is that war on Gaza or unemployment in India, and more broadly speaking, just how India has shifted so much to becoming more pro-Israel in recent years. So I started looking into the story, and one of the first calls I made was to Arbab Ali. He's a freelance reporter based in India, and he actually went to one of these recruiting centers just outside New Delhi last month for a piece that he wrote for Al Jazeera. And he told me how these jobs in Israel are really just a great financial opportunity for these workers. India is going through a lot. I mean, unemployment is rising and there are no opportunities in India. I mean, real opportunities for the youth. The pay is actually good in Israel if you compare it to the Indian pay. I mean, the money is more than good, right? I mean, three to four times what Indian workers make in other countries and like seven to eight times what they make in India. I mean, it's huge difference. And that kind of explains why there's so many people lining up Yeah. So, Natasha, I want to describe this scene to you. As our Bob was explaining to me, and I've seen videos of it as well, there's these long lines outside these buildings where the recruitment drives are taking place. Hundreds of people. And in some cases, people have camped out nearby for days just to get a chance to line up. And it's winter in northern India right now where all of this is happening. And it can get pretty cold. So everyone's bundled up in coats and woolen hats. That's quite a scene there, Ashish. What were they saying about why they're there and what kind of jobs they were applying for? Yeah, there are actually interviews and skill tests going on over there for things like wall plastering, marble fitting. This is Mahesh Kumar, a mason who went to the recruitment center that Arbab was at. 
The children will have a brighter future. They'll be able to get better education and progress in life. When there's extra money, the family will also do better. And our Bob spoke to several other people like that. There was this guy Pramod Sharma, and he had two children, one dependent daughter, one dependent sister who he needs to get married. And that is one of the main reasons he wants to go to Israel. Because, I mean, in India, there's this dowry system and he has to pay for the dowry. And he doesn't have any, like, source of income. Like, because in COVID, he lost his job. He does get money from the government for some construction work. It could be anything from building a pond to working in fields. I mean, you get less than $3 a day. And he has a family of like four people. And our Bob says Pramod's journey to the recruitment center shows just how desperate he is for opportunities. He came from Bihar, that is like over 1,000 kilometers from the recruitment center. And he's been sleeping in the bus and going to washroom at a dhaba, the local restaurant. And I mean, it's very cold here. And still he goes every day at 4 a.m. before the sun even rises. Our Bob says some people pay as much as $3,000 to recruitment agencies just for a chance at an interview. $3,000? That's a lot of money. I mean, sounds like it could be a year's salary for somebody like Promote. Yeah, I mean, the promise can be as much as $20,000 in Israel if they're hired, though. Hmm. So for them, it seems worth the risk. And there are so many similar stories. So it sounds like these workers are really on board with this program. Does that go for everybody in India? No, not everyone, and especially not the Indian trade unions. Arbab was clear about that. There was this uproar in the Indian trade union segment. Everybody was like, this is wrong, that something like this is happening, and the government is even considering this. So I also spoke to Clifton Di Rosario. He's the national secretary of the All India Central Council of Trade Unions. And he definitely emphasized that point. The treatment of Indian workers by the government as an exportable commodity, that in itself is reprehensible. It's uh, even more dehumanizing when you're pushing these workers into a war zone and putting the workers at risk. There is also a history to this. Indentureship and the exploitation of workers, labor force as it were, these are the pillars of settler colonization. And India has seen this before as well. Uh, we really believe that the government is taking Indians down the same path of colonial subservience. And that is something that, you know, that we find uh, absolutely unacceptable. And Clifton also says the labor unions believe that India sending workers to Israel would be aiding the war on Gaza. And that's something they don't support. The point also is that you look at the kind of settler colonization that Palestine has been facing at the hands of Israel. And basically, this is replacing the jobs that were being done by the Palestinians. It is very disappointing that the Indian government has opted to, to take this step, which kind of uh, supports the discriminatory practices of Israel. So Clifton talked about the government there, but what exactly are the government's roles in all of this? And I'm talking about the Israeli government and the Indian government. Yeah, so the two countries actually signed an agreement in May of last year. 
And that agreement involved sending 34,000 construction workers from India to Israel. So that's well before Israel's current war on Gaza even began. That's right. But the fact that Israel banned over 100,000 Palestinian workers after October 7th means there's this new labor shortage. Many of those people worked in the construction sector. Now, to be clear, the Israeli government denies that Indian workers are explicitly replacing Palestinians. But the Israeli Builders Association, which works closely with their government, lobbied Israel to bring in Indian workers after the Palestinian workers were banned. And they've been much more explicit about it. We hope to engage 50,000 to 100,000 workers from India to be able to run the all sector and bring it back to normal. That's the association's vice president, Haim Feiglin, speaking to Voice of America late last year. Okay, and so what's the Indian government's involvement here? So in addition to the agreement, the Indian government is involved in this on multiple levels. There are job postings on the website of the National Skill Development Corporation. That's an entity that was set up by the central or federal government. But you also have state governments like Uttar Pradesh and Haryana, which is where Arbab was reporting from, that have also advertised many of these Israeli jobs and have also set up these recruitment centers. And it's worth noting that those specific states are run by the BJP, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's Hindu Nationalist Party. So all of this is why the trade unions and journalists like Arbab see this as the Modi government sending Indian workers to replace Palestinians. Let's hear from Arbab again. I mean, historically, India had this pro-Palestinian stand and suddenly now there is this conflict and you know who the aggressor is and who's committing the genocide. And now you're sort of sending your workers first to go in an active war zone. You don't even know where they'll be based. And Israel has this history of like worker rights abuse. And then you're sending your own workers there. They're to replace Palestinian workers. I mean, so I was quite surprised. Like, we will go this path. So how do Indian workers in Israel fit into the broader India-Israel relationship? That's after the break. Before we get back to our episode, I want to tell you about a project our team has been working on. On the take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aljazeera.com forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aljazeera.com forward slash earthquakes. Now, back to the show. So, Ashish, these workers, were they nervous about going to Israel at all? Yeah, I asked Arbab about that. Did any of them feel, like, afraid of going to a war zone? Yeah, I mean, they are afraid. I mean, an engineering student, 25-year-old, he told me, like, there are these rockets flying everywhere, but they don't have a choice. They, they don't have opportunities in India. Then there were these other workers who have seen what is happening in Gaza, and they had this thought that they'll make them clear the rubble and stuff in Gaza City. I mean, they were saying, why else would they pay us this much? They must be sending us to the active war zone to sort of clear out the rubble from the bombings. 
there was this one fellow who was like i mean i i don't want to go as a construction worker or something if they want to employ me as a soldier to fight off hamas i'm happy to do that so this guy is saying he doesn't want to do construction in israel but he wants to fight in the war i mean i can understand why he'd go there for the pay but i'm not sure i'm understanding why he would want to fight israel's war yeah i mean this kind of illustrates just how much India has taken a shift in recent years, uh, especially amongst Hindu nationalists, to be very fervently pro-Israel. Huh. I mean, Arbab explains it well. In India, there's this strong uh, support for Israel from the right wing, from the government, and there's been this disinformation regarding Muslims, regarding Palestinians and everything. So, I mean, this has sort of seeped into the populace also. And that support for Israel has really only grown since Modi came to power in 2014. Critics say a big part of the relationship is uniting over a perceived common threat, and that's Muslims. So I spoke to someone who literally wrote the book on how India and Israel have grown closer over time. My name is Azad Isa. I'm a journalist and the author of Hostile Homelands, The New Alliance Between India and Israel. Azad says the India-Israel relationship has multiple layers. India purchases more arms from Israel than any other country in the world. India also co-produces Israeli weapons in factories across India. And this partnership has been reflected in Indian foreign policy as well. The Indian government was very slow to get behind a call for a ceasefire, and it has not supported South Africa's case at the ICJ against Israel. And it's more surprising when you understand, as we've heard, that India actually used to be very pro-Palestinian. But Azad explains how all of that has shifted. Now, many Indians have come out uh, as major supporters of Israel because the government has managed to create a narrative that the modernizing project in India is closely linked with being partners with Israel and that they both face similar enemies, in other words, Muslims, and that they are both, you know, defending their civilization, defending their religion, defending their culture, and uh, that this is India's war as well. Now, of course, India is run by a right-wing Hindu nationalist party who seeks to turn India into a kind of version of Israel. Narendra Modi looks at Israel as a strong, militaristic, ethno-nationalist state, and he wants to emulate that. You know, India is well on its way on to becoming a Hindu Rashtra or Hindu state in which certain people belong more than others, just like the Israeli state. To give you an idea of the kind of rhetoric that's been coming out of the BJP, here's a speech by Sangeet Som. He's a BJP politician in Uttar Pradesh. And this is him spreading misinformation about Hamas in October. The Hamas fighters were slicing open the stomachs of expecting mothers and pulling out the fetuses. They were cutting open chests and eating people's hearts. So Ashish, what's mainstream Indian media coverage been like around the war on Gaza? This is also a huge part of the story. I was in India soon after the war began, and it was really striking how pro-Israel the TV news media in particular was. Do you really think, ladies and gentlemen, that the terrorist attack that you've seen on Israel will never happen in India, that it's really that far off? It is not that far off. The same radical, jihadist, Islamist, terrorist thinking that 
Israel is a victim of, we are a victim of as well. It's just that we have had a very strong... And Azad talks about how the Indian media has played a big role in amplifying that narrative. Now, Narendra Modi's government was extremely quick to respond to the attacks of October 7th. And as a result of that swiftness and the clear-eyed response from, from Modi... Uh, in support of Israel. This, you could say, prompted the Indian media as well as social media to come out very strongly in support of Israel. The Indian media also really treat this story of October 7th as if it's the beginning of history, as if there's no occupation, there's no apartheid, there's no siege on Gaza for more than 17 years, which is very much an Israeli way of telling the story. And the media tries to draw parallels between the events of October 7th with uh, an incident that took place in 2008, known as 2611th, in which uh, a Pakistan-based group essentially conducted a series of attacks in Mumbai, killing hundreds of people. And so what these newscasters and journalists and sort of like state-aligned analysts try to portray was that Just as India has these so-called jihadi extremists to deal with, these sort of like enemies of the state to handle, Israel also has that similar type of uh, enemy. And it was incumbent on India and Indians to get behind this war as well. In fact, one presenter from Republic TV actually described it as Israel is fighting for you and me. So this is the kind of vitriol uh, that was pushed onto the Indian public in the days following October 7th. Israel is fighting this war on behalf of all of us. Israel is fighting this war for you and me. Israel is fighting this war for all free-thinking people across the world. So that's the mainstream media. What about social media? Yeah, that kind of misinformation has spread online as well. Azad says right-wing, you know, so-called internet warriors have been pushing some of the most pro-Israel and Islamophobic content you'll see online. You know, troll armies were being sent to amplify support for Israel on the internet. So, for instance, if the Israeli prime minister's office or the Israeli military put out a tweet or a social media post, you would have all of these Indian accounts showing their support immediately. People putting up pictures of themselves with a sign that says, uh, we stand with Israel, or another one with images of two hands in a clasp with the colors of Israel and India painted on them, you know, showing that it's a kind of like an unbreakable bond. And now Arbab's seeing the same kind of anti-Muslim sentiment with this Israeli recruitment drive. What do you mean by that? Yeah, Arbab says there are signs that say the jobs are only for Hindus, not Muslims. Wow, that's crazy. One interesting thing that we saw was these local recruitment agencies. They have released these posters which explicitly say that these Recruitments are for Hindu candidates. Oh, wow. I mean, India has the third largest Muslim population. That's coming from the Israeli side, you think? The workers said that the agencies told them that the Israeli recruiters won't hire anybody Muslim. We don't have clarity on that, but mostly it was Hindu workers who were present there. So, Ashish, where is this going next? Well... Arbab says the recruitment could extend to another state. And the workers he spoke to are hoping that they'll get to go to Israel soon. They started the recruitment in India's largest state, the Uttar Pradesh. 
and then there are talks that the recruitment will go to Uttarakhand also another uh, Himalayan state but the recruiters have told the people who have been selected they say uh, that they'll get a call in the next month or so they'll go and that's the take this episode was produced by Ashish Malhotra with Faranisa Kampana Suri El Khalili David Enders Sonia Bagat, Chloe K. Lee, Amy Walters, Nagin Oliai, Zaina Badr, Khaled Sultan, Miranda Lynn, and me, Natasha Del Toro. In for Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexander Locke is the Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>